All right, welcome to Market Call. That's MKT Call. I am Dan Nathan. I am usually joined by Guy Adami. Guy Adami is in his homeland, but I have a very, very special guest filling in today. That would be Karen Feinerman. She is of Metropolitan Capital, but you also know her because she's been on CNBC's Fast Money with Guy and me for years. Karen, welcome to Market Call. Thanks, Dan. You've not Thanks. been on Market Call here before. You've been on On the Tape with us, which has been a lot of fun. But really quickly, before we get into it, I have to thank our sponsors. Market Call is brought to you by FactSet. They are financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. We get all of our charts and our market data from FactSet. And obviously, SoFi on Thursdays, get your money right all in one app. And we are brought to you by our production partner, Open Exchange. All right, Karen, how are you? Yes. I'm good, Dan. Happy to be here, uh, you know, unplugged. Well, listen, call with you. I think our listeners and viewers know you very well. You are obviously the one who keeps us in check on Fast Money. And you've been doing Fast Money for over 10 years. I started doing it, I think, in 2011. You were one of the originals, I think, in what, back in 06, 07? Does it go that far back? 07. I know. It's I mean, crazy. it is crazy. And I will say this. I think a lot of our viewers know they get to see Guy and I pal around here a lot. We are obviously good personal friends, but I would say that you and Guy and myself, we are in fact very good friends. We don't just play that on TV, do we? <laughs> no, it's true. It's All true. Right. In fact, we're trying to get I was trying to get Dan to join us for a dinner. Yeah, like, nah, I'm too busy. I no, can't. it's not what I said, but uh, but but whatever. We'll do it soon. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about markets. One of the things I always find fascinating, and I know that you you see me looking across the desk when you're speaking sometimes, and I'm kind of like nodding, and it's not exactly how I might approach markets because we come from very different points of view as as we think about markets. I think of them sometimes in very granular fashions as it relates to the price action. You think of them a bit more granular as you think about individual stocks, right? And and valuation, and you have a heavy, heavy bent towards valuation. But let's, let's just talk about like what you're feeling right now in a market like in 2022. You know, you and I, again, have been on the Fast Money desk for years together, and we've been around some very volatile markets. We've been in markets where there's not a whole heck of a lot of value I think we're in one of those where both of those are happening right now. How are you thinking about markets in 2022? Because again, you're kind of like steady as she goes. You're not one of these hyperbolic people when things are going gangbusters or vice versa when the market's getting killed. Right. So, you know, I have a much more longer term view than the term fast money would suggest. And so, you know, I, I think about where things could go. I'm also, I'm not a particularly great trader, right? So that that's a skill that you have and you can be really quick and in and out and that's a strength. Yeah. But for me, I think about it much more long-term. I also try to be very tax efficient. And so I try to use options to help with that, but also I have to think about not trying to be in and out for a relatively small percentage move. Yeah. I've got to think something's gone materially wrong to get out. So yeah. I think, though, in this market, as volatile as it is, I think the bottom is in for some sectors and the bottom is not in for others. So I know we always talk about the market as a monolith, but I don't think it I don't think it has to be that way. Yeah. So, so really, really quickly on that risk management, and, and we'll talk a little bit about how you use options later. But when you think about when you buy into a position, let's say you come up with a fundamental thesis, and it, generally it will be a long-term thesis. And I'm assuming it starts with at least six months, maybe a year sort of time horizon for something to start to play out. 
What percentage do you go into a position? Let's say if you never want more than a 5% position in your portfolio, will you start at a half, a quarter, a third? I'm just curious. And then if it goes down 10%, like immediately, you know what I mean? Like, how do you think about the sizing of your positions? And then how do you think about, you know, stop losses in those positions? That's a great question. I think that I always say the ideal portfolio for me is 10, 10% positions. Yeah. I never have that. I never find, you know, these <laughs> 10 things that I yeah. love that I want to be in 10% positions. But I think about rather than so much thinking about how big the position is, a percent of the portfolio, it's more how risky is this position? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I look at something like an alphabet where mm-hmm. there's a ton of cash, it's not trading at a crazy multiple. And, you know, they have a big buyback and they're, you know, mature company and have grown ups at the helm and all of that. I think that's going to have a lot more risk than some other things that I could own and have owned in the past. So I think about that more. How much downside do I want to lose in any one position? And it used to be 2%, but that's actually in volatile times. I've got to be willing to lose more than that. That can happen. Okay. So it's more about... How much do I want to lose? Three or 4% of that's a lot to lose in position. It happens. I mean, you know, Meta has been a disaster for a company that I would have said shouldn't have a ton of downside for all those reasons. Lots of cash, not a huge valuation. Yeah. But that's so, a, that, so this is a really good question in a way, you know, you could have made the argument that both of these companies, Meta and Alphabet, had kind of very similar moats. And you think about their businesses, they both had a lot of cash. They had some very good, you know, I, I think they both have good management, whether you think, you know, Zuckerberg and, and Sheryl Sandberg were good or not. But, you know, you have a situation with like a with a Google. I mean, you know, Alphabet is down 33 percent from the all time highs it made just earlier this year. That is more than the Nasdaq. It's more than the S&P 500. So here's a company that's trading at one of the cheapest valuations that it has in the last five years, right? If on a PE basis and actually on some other metrics and the cash pile only gets bigger. But again, you know, it's still about 25% above its pre-pandemic highs. And then you just kind of juxtapose that versus a meta. Now, obviously these are two very different companies. They both have have huge ad-supported businesses. The problem that Meta has is that they only basically have one ad-supported business and Google has search and they have a whole host of other things going on. But my question is, is what if, let's say, some of the secular headwinds that a Meta is facing really start to hit different parts of Alphabet's businesses here? Will you pull the plug or will you continue to average down because you believe that this is a company that you want to own for three to five years from now? Yeah, it's the latter because I do think I don't think anything's fundamentally changed. I do think actually, in some ways, you can make the argument that the Apple privacy issues have been it's yeah. certainly a relative benefit to Alphabet, if not an absolute, because search is different than Facebook's advertising model. Yeah. They've been able to weather that storm better. I think that I mean the cash pile just continues to grow. They're doing buybacks, which, you know, that's a relatively new phenomenon for them, not just, you know, bullshit little buybacks of some, you know, mathematical number, but more, you know, 50 billion which they should. They should. Well, you know what's funny? I remember you and I, this was about five years ago when Ruth Porat, who had just come over from Morgan Stanley to be the CFO of, I think it was then still Google, but now Alphabet. And one of the first things that she did were buybacks. And that really broke that stock out of a range that had been in for a couple years prior. And you know what's also interesting to think about? Think about one of the first things Tim Cook did when he took over in 2012, initiated a buyback. And I know a lot of people are very critical of buybacks, but the history 
history, at least in some of these big tech companies. I know Microsoft, when they started doing buybacks, you know, like 20 some years ago, I mean, these were like big catalysts for these big stocks. Listen, here's another one. You know, we have Carter Braxton Worth on Market Call a lot. He's on Mondays and Wednesdays with us. And, you know, obviously you've been doing fast money with him for years. How do you think about technicals? I'm going to throw an S&P chart up here a little bit. Yeah. And, and, well, and let me also- just answer. Let me go back to yeah. one other thing yeah. though, real quick. Yeah. Which was when Ruth Porat got there, she was a grown-up with yeah. a financial discipline. Yeah. And one of the side products, one of the first things she did is let's break out these lines of businesses. So you guys in the street, you can really see how great yeah. search is and also how expensive all the other bets are and how YouTube is coming along. And that that I think really unlocks some value as well. Yeah. So want to add that in there. No, I I think it's a a great point because that increased transparency, it basically unlocks some value in some of these businesses that people were probably kind of just mushing together because they saw that there was a drag based on these other bets and people couldn't quantify exactly what they were. And she definitely got that a bit more organized. I agree with that. But so on the technical side, you're obviously focused on fundamentals and you do a lot of deep, you know, value work as you, you know, kind of do research on individual names and, and the broad market. But what you hear us talking about charts all the time. And, you know, again, I, I was brought up as a trader. And so for me, you know, technicals were really important input as I think about entries and exits. And I think about strikes and options. And as I think about sentiment, where a lot of people live, curious what you think here, because you see Carter, he came on a couple of weeks ago when the S&P had just kind of was about to top out here. He drew this red line on this S&P chart here, like this downward trend. And he made a very strong case. It lined up with the 200 day moving average. And it came right down and look where it bounced off of this uptrend that's been in place since the June lows. How do you think about charts like this? Does it weigh into any of your decision-making process as you're adding to a long or as you're thinking about taking some profits in a long or you're thinking about defending your portfolio a little bit? So it's a really good question because it's not my background, but yeah. you know, I remember in high school when they would show us astronomy, they would show us like five stars and say, look, this is a picture of a warrior holding a spear and a bear chasing him. I'm like, that's five stars. How do you get that picture from five stars? I think about technical, I think about graphs a little bit the same way. Can't you just make the line do whatever you want if you go back or change the scale or whatever? But here is my, I had an epiphany from being on the show and having some great You know, Carter, obviously, is a great one. And other ones come on. And here's my epiphany is that it doesn't matter if I think that makes sense as a way to analyze things or not. What matters is enough people do think that. And so if the chart by that methodology is showing you a floor at 50, well, then there's a floor at 50. So I respect that that art and slash science. I think it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. So even though it's certainly not, you know, the top tool in my tool belt, I do recognize that there's value there. So I do think about that. And, you know, going back to kind of my training too, this is 25 years ago. I mean, one of the guys that I worked for was, you know, just traded S&P futures all day long and he would trade them with stops and he was using charts to put in the stops right below different levels or right above different levels where he thought there was either a lot of open interest or, what you know, whatever it may be. And so to me, I think from a sentiment standpoint, they're really interesting. I never trade just off of a chart either. But, you know, here's a, here's a good example. Here's the NASDAQ 100, okay, the NDX. And we know the top five or six names make up, what, 40, 45 percent of the weight of that. And here we are 
We're back to, you know, levels that we've been bouncing around. Draw whatever line you want, whatever makes you feel good. I'll just tell you this, that like there's people who have stops in the futures. There's people who picked, you know, strikes, whether they be put strikes that they're short because they're making a bullish bet or whatever. And when you violate some of those levels, you see stops elected and you see price action move a little bit. And so that's one of the reasons why I usually include a chart when I'm kind of detailing a story. And I think it serves you well and serves to underline your story. Well, you know, I'm trying. I appreciate that. All right. Let's let's talk about this because we went into some some detail about your background in the business where you started as a risk arbitrageur. This was back in the day. And, you know, it's funny. I've always really enjoyed your commentary on Fast Money whenever there's like a big deal. And, you know, oftentimes like Risk Arb, you're setting up one publicly traded company, buying another publicly traded company, and you can kind of back into kind of the spread and you put that on. And if the deal closes as such and you'll track it, you're going to make that spread and you make money, yada, yada. But here's the situation. This deal today with Adobe is really interesting to me. Adobe was already down 30 plus percent on the year. They're paying $20 billion for a collaboration software company, $20 billion in cash and stock. And it's private and it's probably the largest private acquisition by a publicly traded company ever. You have to go back to when Facebook in 2014 bought WhatsApp and they're paying. You ready for this? And we we're just talking about it on our fast money call for tonight. 50 times sales. This company is maybe going to do $400 million in recurring revenue. And Adobe is a company that's going to do $17.5 billion. So you think about it as a percentage of what their revenues are. You think about it as a multiple of sales that they're paying. And Adobe's stock is down basically $20 billion in market cap today. Talk to me, putting your ARB hat on here, yeah. what this means to you. Well, first I look at it like, wow, does that make sense? And yeah. it tells me a lot of things. So one is that, okay, the deal is $10 billion cash and $10 billion in stock. It's not quite worth that anymore. I haven't seen yet if there's a collar and so that they can make the stock portion actually be worth 10 So I think, wow, Adobe thinks selling their stock here is, is a good way to pay for it. That makes sense. They don't want to take the, you know, the debt on the balance sheet. They can afford it, but you know they don't want to be too indebted. And they... When you're buying something that's this dilutive, yeah, that's sort of interesting to me. What does that say about what they think about their business? There's that. And I think the market's right to kind of flip out. It, it feels like the, you know, buying something at 50 times revenue is so 2021 now, right? Well, you just said something really interesting, though. It says, it says something about their business. So think about this. They don't have a ton of debt right now. They have $4.5 They have $5.7 in cash. And then you just said that they're happy to sell their stock, which effectively is what they are doing if they're buying right. a portion of it with stock. And then the cash portion, okay, well, they don't have enough cash and they do generally generate a lot of cash, but with interest rates where they are, right? Like you would say that, you know, do you remember in 15 and 16, do you remember the hundreds of billions of dollars in semiconductor deals that were done? Do you remember where interest rates were back then? They were still at zero, right? So that made sense, right? To finance a lot of those deals or finance buybacks. It's a different world now. And I wonder if this 17% down move in Adobe really reflects a lot of those different trends all wrapped up in one. I do. I think it represents, yes, partially that. I would think, you know, they do have, as you said, the balance sheet's in great shape. They do generate a lot of cash to the extent that they want to finance $10 billion. They will be able to do it relatively easily. It's going to be easier than some other deals would be. 
But it does really make me think, how is right now, I'm surprised that they feel like right now is the time to pay that kind of multiple for that company. It's a, we haven't seen, I mean, it's a gigantic price. So then I look at, you know, I haven't looked through the merger agreement, so I don't know what their outs are. I mean, Elon Musk has introduced a whole new level of, you know, potential concern about merger agreements that there shouldn't be there. You know, he's his own, he's his own, I don't know what he so, does. So, so really, but really quickly, and I want to talk about Musk and I want to talk about Twitter, but you just mentioned, you know, when you think about these valuations and software, you know, you've been short this IGV, you mentioned it on Fast Money for months now, and this has been, I think, a, a hedge or, or has it been an outright bearish bet. And this is the ETF that attracts the software space in, in Microsoft, Salesforce, Adobe. These are all some of the major components in that. Uh-huh. It's sort of a combination hedge for, all right, if rates go up, this sector is really going to go down a lot, right? This sector is turbocharged to the movement in rates. But it's also very tech, very, very tech or entirely tech heavy. And I have what I think of as tech light in, you know, Alphabet's my biggest position. So they're correlated, not as tightly as some of the members of the IGV are correlated to each other. So there's some element of, of outright, it's a turbocharge bet. It's not just, you know, short cues or short spiders. It's more than that. It's sort of an anti-arc. I don't love, you know, negative ETF. I'd rather be- Reverse, yeah, the reverse yes. arc that you could have done right, that. But the turtle, uh, yeah. So it is both. It is both. I covered a little this week, a little early. Turns out on DocuSign, having good numbers in the stock trading well, but I am still short. And I mean, on a day like today, Adobe's doing a favor for me. Um, well, I'll tell you this. I mean, when you think about this and you think about Oracle's reaction to their earnings, you know, on Tuesday, you think about this result, you know, out of Adobe, they did print their results and it's obviously being overshadowed by this acquisition. Salesforce, you know, just made new 52 week lows. That's one of the largest holdings. You know, it really feels like Microsoft holds the key to this entire space. And I think one of the big things, you know, we've talked about a lot on Market Call over the last few weeks is that, you know, Microsoft stock, when they reported that fiscal, I think it was Q4, just in late July, you know, the stock was trading very near its 52-week lows, but then they're giving guidance. They basically said that they're not seeing enterprise, you know, erosion in demand and the stock rocketed and had a big, you know, big move higher. It just feels like the longer we kind of have this economic malaise, the longer that we're going to see, like, you know, these companies can't hold out that much longer and kind of cutting expenses, a lot of their enterprise customers, that sort of thing. And, you know, our friend Peter Bookvar made a really good point about Microsoft and their cloud business versus versus let's say Amazon's cloud business is that Amazon's exposed to a lot more smaller businesses, that sort of thing, where Microsoft is much more exposed to large enterprises. And that's probably the last thing that's going to crack. I think that's right. And that'll be bad when it does, but they they didn't seem to give a sign that it was, but we all know, you know, at some point it will. But one of these things that we touched on briefly the other day on our show was to me, it seems like you know, the Microsofts, the behemoths of the world who have never focused on expenses in any realistic way are now starting to do that. And I just imagine the amount of fat to cut is enormous. So I think there's an opportunity for them to be able to continue to make earnings. I don't know how long that will last, but we're just at the very, very beginning of that. And, you know, we'd all rather buy growth than cutting expenses, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. So no, I think there's a somewhat of a floor there. All right, let's not talk- at the money floor, but 
Yeah, let's talk about Twitter a little bit. And again, yeah. I don't think we have to get into, you know, like Musk, you know, what he believes. What Musk believes doesn't really matter. It's not doesn't have to be a thing that any of us believe that's on any of the law books or anything like that. But here we have a situation where earlier this year he agreed to pay $44 billion to buy Twitter. That was personally, right? And he had the debt lined up, he had the equity lined up. He's been selling a lot of his own stock to kind of put in the equity here. You know, again, he spent the last couple months really trying to get out of this deal for whatever reason. In, he doesn't think it's worth $44 billion. He's making a whole bunch of claims of why he thinks that he was misled. All that here nor there. This is a $32 billion market cap company right now. He has a signed agreement to pay $44 billion. It's going to court next month here. We know that Twitter just had a whistleblower coming out and talking about some things that Musk was claiming. One of the reasons why he believes he was misled about this company. What do you do with this? You were trading around this in the spring and you were trading around it really well. And I remember on a couple of occasions, me, the trader, was telling you the arm, oh, I didn't let, you know, on the show. I And you were dead right on a, on a couple of these kind of intermediate term trades. You were using options in some instances. Is there anything to do right now? I mean, do you have to have a ton of conviction that the courts are going to enforce him to buy this to kind of get long this thing where it is? Because again, the agreed upon price is 54, stocks trading right. at 41. Right. You have to have a ton of conviction in one of two outcomes that the court says, Elon, you have no case here. You have to uphold the merger agreement. He'll appeal that, but I think that's the most likely scenario. The second and a likely scenario is that they shave the price of the deal. So let's say he gets, even if he gets 15% off, you know, that's 47 bucks ish, give or take. So that's decent upside from here. You have to believe very strongly that one of those iterations will happen. So the other thing, you know, this whistleblower thing, he's claiming that's an out. It's not really an out. A lot of merger agreements will say, hey, target company, if you are issuing any payment beyond X amount, you need to approve it with us. There is no such element of the Twitter merger agreement. So this $7 million payment, they are free to make that payment. Yeah. Is there substance to the whistleblower saying? I don't really know. I don't think it's an out. But if you're an ARB, you got to think, wow, he's just going to try to keep taking shots on goal, no matter how off position or bullshit they are. Yeah. And that presents a new new level of risk. Sometimes crazy, crazy stuff happens. And then the flip side is, it. what's the downside of Twitter now? Yeah. I don't know. So I, I, think, I, I, think I think it's- you handle? What do you think? I think it's easily, let's just say he was not forced to buy the company, okay? Like, let's say yep. he has an out, and I think he would immediately sell his 9% stake, is my right. guess. And I think you and I have talked about this. I think the stock goes down 30% like that. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm looking at November expiration. I'm looking at the options chain, okay? The stock is at 42 and a quarter right here. The 40 put, okay, to the downside. I'm just going to round it up. It's about five bucks, okay? So you do the math on that, okay? So that's about 12, 13%, okay, that, of the, the stock. But let's just say you want to do a put spread. Let's say you wanted to buy the 40, 30 put spread. Cost you maybe about $2.60, so about a quarter of the width. That's not crazy if you think no, about it. No, that's not that crazy. Year. The 40, 30. Yeah, the 40, 30 put spread. So you basically pay about 480 or so for the 40 put in November. You could sell the November put at about 210. Okay. So 30. 
Yeah, the 30 thousand. put, sorry, the 30 put at 210. And so um, what I'm saying is that's not out of whack given what the break yeah. even would be. You know, you you basically yeah. could make maybe seven bucks on the move back to 30 and you're risking, you know, 6% or so of the stock price. So it's funny that you would think that it wouldn't be that efficient right now. And it tells you that that 10 wide put spread down to 30 is almost $2 cheap in my opinion. Or that, that I guess the... Yeah, I do think it's kind of cheap because I guess if the court rules, okay, you have an out, Elon, Twitter will surely appeal. Yeah. And we won't know whether or not it's heard on appeal yet or have a decision by November expiration is my strong guess. But boy, the day that comes out and they say, Elon, you're off the hook. Bang. That's bad. All right, let's talk about a, a few more names here before we get out of here. Last yeah. night on, on Fast Money, we we're talking about Netflix a little bit and about uh, just this kind of the strategy to, to catch the the free riders, as they call them here, and they're going to do an ad supported thing. And so ISI Evercore, ISI upgraded the stock. We were talking about Doug Anmuth from JP Morgan, who rates the stock in neutral yesterday. He had some positive comments, and it was interesting because he was basically saying, and listen, Doug, who's a great analyst, he has a, a like a $225 target on. And he's through his target already and a neutral like and and analysts are really off sides on this thing. There's only 13 buys, 26 holds and six sells per fact set here. And I have the chart. I don't know if you can see that. Look at this thing banging up against that kind of gap from April. And I mentioned it on Fast Money last night. And you see where that 200 day moving average is. You know, there is no overhead resistance up for like. I don't know, hundred bucks here or something like that on a two forty four stock. And again, you know, this is a stock that actually looks cheap if you think their out year estimates are achievable. And then with this new business, you know, I mean, they're a way for to kind of reduce churn. Is this interesting to you? This story because I know you bought a little bit in the last well, couple of months. I bought it when it broke the first time a little. Yeah. Then when it broke the second time, I bought a little more than turned around and sold it. Then I bought some more earlier this week when the queen died. I tried to buy in the aftermarket and literally, literally. Oh, wait, this up. was a crown trade? You were trading off of the crown? Well, what it started was, you know, just off the crown. I literally ended up only buying one share. But then I'm like, you know what? I do like Netflix. It's not just about the crown at all, although I do think that's that's a good boost for them in the short term. I do like the valuation. I've been waiting to find a time to buy back in. So I did buy more in the last few days. It's not a full position, but I agree with you. I'm in the uncomfortable position of agreeing with, just about everything you said, Dan, which, you know, yeah. you know, let me ask something, Dan, why are you always in a bad mood? What do you mean? I'm always in a bad mood. You get to see you, you seem irritated. You do, always do you think irritated. I sound irritated right now. No, not not. So I have I have a very bad head cold right now. And I'm actually I'm not feeling particularly well. But I was I in a bad mood on, on the on the set last night on, on Fast Money or no? Not a particularly bad move, but the baseline for you yeah. seems to be. I think I see. I feel like you're very irritated by dumb people, and you come across them all the time. Is that it? Do you think so? But do you think I actually I, come across? I mean, I mean, Guy and I do. We do. We we do this every day, and we we have fun. <laughs> we don't get that irritated. We're about as dumb as it gets. The two of us. So back and forth. Though. No, I don't know, man. Well, I'm happy I, to be included then in the show. You, you know, I'm, I, I maybe I like playing the heel here and there. You know, yeah. But I, you know, it's funny. The mar- markets are one of those things where you wake up every morning, and there's some things that just make no sense that are going on. And you know, you and I are in a situation where we've been doing this for a very long time and we know how frustrating it is to lose money on occasions 
things when when you know it just what's going on is really stupid and you can continue to fight it or you can just kind of do shrug emoji and throw your your hands up in the air but like we're faced with dumb shit every day in our profession here you know what i mean so i get a little agitated and then you and then we have to explain it to people and we can't say you know we can't swear we can't say the way we would on a trading <laughs> desk right yes that's true and i think that's better for all of us that yeah all right. All right, let, let's hit a couple things before we get yeah. out of here, because again, yeah. I think fast money viewers know you to be, you know, have a value bent. You also tend to be a bit contrarian here and there. And I really, uh, you know, I appreciate the contrarian nature yeah. of that. You know, you mentioned last night a name like CVS. You said it's kind of boring here, but it's doing the things that you want it to do in this environment. So talk to me a little bit about that. And, and you know, is it purely a valuation thing? Is it that the stock is defensive given that they sell staples, right? Like, like this is something that if we go into a recession you feel pretty comfortable about? It's much more about the evolution of them as a healthcare business. They're in so many parts from pharmacy benefits to actually pharmacies. They own Aetna. They're buying Signify. They've opened their own clinics. They want to be everywhere where healthcare is. It's a giant part of GDP. And, you know, this is a very skilled management team and it's trading at 11 and change times. And to me, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt because they deserve it. And I feel like I'm not even I'm not even taking a significant amount of risk to do it. So yeah. I'm long. <laughs> so that's the, that's a name you've been long, and you yeah. think I mean I just look at that chart and I say to myself that has kind of breakout material. If you could hold that uptrend, I was listening to you last night about it. That's why I wanted to follow up a little bit there. That one sounds interesting. And then there's a lot of corporate action stuff going on there. It looks like they're trying to transform that company too. All right, well, one last thing here. You know, yeah. on market call on Thursdays, we get a preview of John Butters. John Butters is the senior earnings analyst over there at FactSet. Friday mornings, he drops his earnings in. Insight blog. I've been reading this thing for a very long time from Butters. And I always find what he chooses to focus on each week is really interesting because again, this week, you know, like it just really speaks to kind of sentiment around the markets. Usually this one is near and dear to my heart. I know that you kind of are probably like, eh, when it comes to like analyst ratings, you don't really care. You really care what like the meat of the call is. But this week, what's going to drop tomorrow, he's talking about the percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 that have buy ratings and where, which sectors in particular are much heavily more weighted. And I know this is not going to come as a huge surprise to you, but energy is at the top with 63% buys. Tech is also 63%, not a huge surprise. Real estate is 62% here. Let's talk about this. And I'm just curious, you know, what you think is then the flip side of this is consumer staples, which have actually acted pretty well in this environment, less than 40% of the stocks in the staples have buy ratings. Thoughts on ratings in general, and then how you think about them in this context, the way John Butters lays it out from a sentiment standpoint. Okay. So I'm not asking this sarcastically. Is he saying, okay, energy has all these buy ratings from a sentiment standpoint. Is that an indicator or a contraindicator? Well, great. Listen, and you're going to be able to read the note tomorrow in your inbox, Karen, but no, he's also talking about the rate of change. So since February, 2022, 10 sectors have seen a decrease in buy ratings led by energy. So interestingly, okay, when you think about it this way, it's at 63% right now, but that's come down a lot over the last Ah. five or six months as the stocks obviously were probably at their highs at some point in the spring, analysts were probably taking profits on it. And listen, you and I find upgrades in 
and downgrades interesting, especially if some analyst has an axe in the stock or really good in the sector, that sort of right. thing from a trading perspective. But it also sometimes means what their clients are really interested in too, because sometimes, you know, analysts are taking cues from their buy side clients on this stuff. But, you know, I go back to what you said about on Netflix. There's, you know, a very mixed bag on, you know, some buys, some holds, some sells. When the stock was, I don't know, where was the peak? 700, maybe? Yeah. Did it tick there briefly? Yep. Uh, probably there was a universal or if not quite universal, but heavily, heavily skewed buy rating. Yep. Same for RH, right? The same for, you know, probably Zoom at its peak, Peloton yep. at its peak. So when everyone's on the wrong side, I feel like, or on a side. May not be the wrong side. Maybe it seems the wrong side to me. When everyone's on the same side, I feel like who's left to buy them? I yeah. kind of want the stories where every analyst hates it. The bar is low. Yeah, well, and, and, and again, and that's why I find this data really interesting because the Netflix is a single stock example where a lot of analysts, you know, were really late to the game downgrading it when it had already peaked at 700, maybe downgrading at 500, 400. Some of them were probably doing it in the last month when the stock was below 200. You know what I mean? And so to me, what I find interesting is someone who's really focused on catalyst, but also valuation is that when you have a scenario where you can see the potential for something to happen with a company. Company that maybe a lot of people don't because they've been so burned. They've rode, you know, they rode the story the whole way down. Then you have a scenario where if you're in there and you start seeing this story start to play out, well, then the street has to get back involved, right? And they're going to have to upgrade right. the thing. So that's why I, I kind of use it from a sentiment standpoint. Okay. That makes sense to me. All right. Well, listen, I, I hope I, I hope I didn't bring you down here today, Karen, because no, I'm so you, grumpy. You know, I mean, like I'm always in a You know, I always here. send you the little Oscar the Grouch uh, yeah, you do. photo that I have is my Dan. Well, I think I'm in a good mood. I really appreciate you joining Thank me. I you. hope I hope you will come back. It'd be fun for you to come back when Guy and I are on together. And we really appreciate you filling in with Guy, who is in Sicily here. So nice for thank him. you. Love to. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Thanks for having Karen me. Karen Feinerman from Metropolitan Capital and CNBC's Fast Money. And obviously, thanks again to our sponsors, FactSet, SoFi, and Open Exchange for bringing this. We will be back on Monday. I'll be with Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. So we'll see you then, people. Karen, thanks again. All right. Bye.